Hi, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to bring us God's word this morning, which today comes from Psalm chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. Please give your full attention to the reading of God's holy word. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Amen. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. I pray that you would nourish us and give us life according to your word today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first verse says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. And when you read that, you may think, wow, life must be pretty good for whoever wrote this. And it turns out that David wrote this. So it must be at a high point in David's life, right? Maybe after he slayed Goliath. And this is where the titles of the Psalms are very helpful. It's that brief description right before the Psalm. And although they're not canonical, they are historical. And they help set the historical context of each Psalm. And the title of this Psalm says this, A Psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. This event, it takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And what's going on here is that David is running away from Saul. Because after David slayed Goliath, his popularity skyrocketed in Israel, and Saul became so jealous that he wanted David dead. And so David flees Saul, and he flees to a foreign nation, to a foreign king, whose name is Achish, the king of Gath. And the thing about the city of Gath is that David knew a guy who was from there, and that guy was Goliath. And so David was not a very popular guy in Gath. This is both a, a brilliant move and a dangerous move. It's brilliant because it's the very last place Saul would ever think David would go. And it's dangerous because it's the very last place David should go. And it's not a surprise that when David is in Gath, People recognize him, and the servants tell the king. And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says that when David took these words to heart, he was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. What does David do? It says this, So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Achish is probably thinking, there is no way this is David. It can't be. David is an elite warrior. He is a giant slayer. This is just a madman, and so they drive David out. And not only is this version of David unrecognizable to Achish, I would say that this version of David is probably unrecognizable to us. This is not the Sunday school David that we grew up with. Whenever I read this, I wonder, 
Why doesn't David just phase into warrior mode and just slingshot everyone? Who is this guy? Because this version of David is afraid and he's frail. And this is definitely not a high point in David's life. And David was afraid. It says he was afraid. So what about that warrior version of David? Yes, that was David, but this is also David. And the point is this, is that no one is ever always at their best. You are not always at your best and neither am I. In verse six, David calls himself a poor man. And this word means afflicted or wretched. Everyone has their limits and David appears to have reached his. Here's the thing though. Although David reached his limit, his praise is unlimited. Again, in verse one, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. How is this possible? It's possible because David knows about the goodness of God. Today, we're going to learn about the goodness of God and how knowing the goodness of God permitted David to praise God at all times. And I believe that you better understanding the goodness of God will allow you to praise God all of the time, even in the lower points of your life. The first point this morning is this, that omnipotence plus goodness equals providence. What happens if the only thing you know about God and believe about God is that he is all-powerful? I believe that you will become bitter at God. Because if God is all-powerful, then why didn't he prevent that accident or that death or that disease or that divorce? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he end racism or topple evil regimes or serve justice or cure COVID? Believing in God who can do anything but doesn't do everything, will leave you bitter. Omnipotence gives you a reason to praise God, but only sometimes, only on the occasions that God uses his power for good. And so if you only believe in the omnipotence of God, you're only going to praise God occasionally. But David says in verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. This means David, he knows something in addition to the omnipotence of God. And what is that? It's the goodness of God. And that takes you from praising God sometimes to praising God all of the times. It takes you from being bitter at God to blessing God. Verse eight, David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is the key to this psalm. This also needs to be the key to your faith. Because when you really understand the goodness of God, it's going to change your life and it's going to change your worship. It's going to change your perspective on all of the problems and all of the pain and everything that you're going through. David doesn't just want you to settle for a mindless mantra that we learned growing up in church that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. No, David really wants you to experience and know the good of the goodness of God. Just consider the very language of verse eight. He says, oh, taste and see the goodness of God. Those words, taste and see, it's very experiential language. It's, it's sensory. It's personal. It's an invitation for you to really grasp and know in your heart the goodness of God. What is the goodness of God? It's actually very simple. It's the benevolence of God. It's the kindness of God. It means that God is is not evil and incapable of doing any moral wrong. 
And so the goodness of God, it's actually, it's much easier to define than it is to believe. And I would actually say that this attribute of God is the most contested attribute of God on a daily basis because every day the evil in this world, the brokenness in your life, the tragedies in society challenge and contest the goodness of God. This is why we need to understand the goodness of God. Because if we don't, we'll be bitter, we'll be confused, we'll be jaded. The goodness of God is so important because it unlocks another key doctrine and that is the providence of God. The providence of God is so important for us to understand that John Calvin says this, ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries and the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. So what is the providence of God? Well, it does begin with the omnipotence of God, that God is all powerful, but it doesn't end there. David doesn't say, oh, taste and see the power of God. You see, providence is more than power. Omnipotence is power, but omnipotence plus goodness is providence. It's the goodness of God that makes the power of God providential. It's the goodness of God that makes the power of God trustworthy and praiseworthy. Providence does involve giving and withholding, jobs, marriages, children, or health. It involves permitting, success and failure, pleasure and pain. It also involves timing now or later or maybe never. But the providence of God teaches us that all of this giving and withholding, all of this permitting, all of this timing is working together for your good. To sanctify you, to test your faith, to refine you, discipline you in love, prepare you for the future, and ultimately to make you look more like Christ. What does the goodness and providence of God mean for you? It means nothing is meaningless. Louis Burkhoff, the theologian, says this, with its doctrine of providence, the church took position against both the Epicurean notion that the world is governed by chance and the Stoic view that it is ruled by fate. Providence teaches us that nothing is random. Fate says that everything has a destiny, but the problem is that that destiny, it's morally abstract. But as Christians who believe in providence, we know that God determines that destiny and that destiny has a good purpose and plan. If you believe that chance and fate are the best explanations for what's happening in your life, I want you to know that there is something far better than just crossing your fingers and wishing for the best. If you think the best explanation for the pain and problems in your life is just saying, well, I guess everything happens for a reason, I want you to know that you don't have to guess anymore. Because providence and the goodness of God takes all of the guesswork out of everything that you're going through and everything that has happened to you. Providence says that there is a purpose. Providence says that there is a meaning. And we know that purpose and meaning, and that is God working for your good. 
sanctifying you, refining you, testing you, making you look more like Christ. I don't know anyone who wouldn't want to have this deep abiding relationship with such a God. And if that is you today, I want you to know that you can have a relationship with this God and you can know this God. But I also want you to know, and it's important you understand that this providence and this goodness is a privilege reserved exclusively for the children of God. And not everyone is a child of God. And the reason for that is our sin, that we are all born into sin. And that sin separates us from God because God is holy. And because of our sin, what we deserve is actually the opposite of God's goodness and providence, that we actually deserve eternal punishment in misery and hell for eternity. And there's nothing we can do about that because there is no good we can do due to sin. But God does something amazing and merciful that he sends Jesus Christ, his son, to live a perfect, obedient life that we could not live. And he dies on the cross for sins and takes the wrath of God for our sin. And he rose victoriously from the dead, defeating both sin and death. And the gospel is the good news that you are invited to know this God if you would repent In other words, acknowledge that you're a sinner. Place your full trust in Jesus and what he has done, which is what faith is. And not only will you be saved from your sin and forgiven and justified, but you're also adopted as a child of God. And as a child of God, you have that exclusive privilege to experience the providence and goodness of God in every area of your life. And when you taste and see this endless goodness of God, we can say, as David says in verse three, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Practically, what happens when we really begin to understand and experience the goodness of God? The second point is this, the goodness of God frees us and frees us in three ways. The first way is this, you are free from disappointment. What is disappointment? Disappointment is the distance between where you want to be and where you are now. And the greater that distance is, the greater your disappointment. Verse 5, David says this, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This word ashamed can mean shame or embarrassment, but it can also mean disappointment. And that makes sense because a lot of shame is a result of our disappointment and produces shame. For example, maybe you get rejected by that guy or girl you really like and everyone knew you liked them and then you feel shame. Or maybe you didn't get into the college you really were hoping to get into. You're disappointed, but maybe you also feel, feel shame. If you're a parent, maybe your kids aren't as achieving as you wanted them to be. You're disappointed and you feel shame. Maybe your marriage isn't the way you thought it would turn out and you feel shame, maybe at this age you're not making as much money as I thought you would make, or you're not as successful as you thought you would be, and you feel shame. Maybe you thought you'd never sin that way, or be sinned against that way, and you experience shame. Comparing ourselves to others adds to our disappointment and shame. Why am I not like that? Why don't I look like that? Diane Kim, she says this, Whether it's a diagnosis, disorder, divorce, death, 
or the death of a dream. Everyone has to reconcile our faith with disappointment. And let me ask you this. How do you reconcile your faith with disappointment? If we don't know how to reconcile our faith with disappointment, that's when we may find ourselves distant and disengaged from church. That's when we may find ourselves angry at the world, bitter at everyone, especially God. And I would say this, that if you have a hard time reconciling your disappointments in life with your faith, I bet you're having a really hard time praising God. And I don't mean just singing songs to God. I mean truly, sincerely, genuinely, from the bottom of your heart, saying God is good, I love God, and I want to worship Him. How do we reconcile our faith with disappointment? You have a choice. You can either focus and look at your situations alone and become bitter, or you can look to God and become radiant. David says in verse 5, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This radiance is a word that describes what people are like when they're experiencing maximum joy. This word is used in Isaiah 60 when God is describing future glory and what we're going to experience then. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Practically, we reconcile our faith with disappointment by looking to God. And not just looking to his omnipotence, but looking to his goodness and his providence. And I will, I'll be the first to say that does not come naturally. And I have to fight for that. And I fight for it by reading the scriptures and going back to very familiar stories, the stories of Joseph and Job and David. I fight for that by listening to a lot of the same praise songs or hymns. And I put them on repeat as they remind me that whatever my lot, it is well with my soul. And I do that best by looking at the darkness of my sin and then looking at the preciousness and worth of Jesus Christ, and then looking at the unspeakable cruelty and brutality of the cross, and there on the hill of Calvary, there I see the unspeakable and undeniable and unquestionable goodness of God towards me, that I can't dispute that when I consider the gospel. The gospel is the clearest picture of God's goodness towards us. The second way, the goodness of God frees us. You are free from fear and hopelessness. We are no strangers to fear. We could even say that this year has been a year of fear. You're fearing for your health. You fear for your family's well-being, financial instability of losing a loved one, fear of losing a job or fear of the future. And all of this fear can lead to an overwhelming sense of hopelessness. Will things ever change? Will things ever improve? Will things ever get better? And I would say that all of this fear and hopelessness has surely contributed to the surge of mental health crises in 2020. I'm slowly learning more about mental health. And I read an article that came out this year in March about depression and suicide. And it said this, a person may decide to take their own life when facing a loss or the fear of loss. When people feel they have lost all hope and don't feel able to change that, it can overshadow all of the good things in their life, 
making suicide seem like a viable option. And even those who seem like they are on top of the world, like David, when he slayed Goliath, they can still be plagued by fear. Alison Gervais, who is a psychotherapist in the Bay Area, an area that has a concentration of highly successful, very wealthy people, says this, that those who are doing financially well or in the spotlight, that they can live with depression and anxiety, low self-worth and loneliness. And what's the reason? She says, fear. Fear of losing jobs, fearing what others would think fear of appearing weak or incapable, fear of letting others down, and fear to talk about it due to mental health stigma. And this is what David is describing in verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger. These young lions, they are in their prime. They're the strongest, most capable, apex predator. But even the young lions feel pangs of hunger, and they lack, and they are vulnerable The psalm teaches us that even when you are at the top, you are not immune from the feelings of fear and hopelessness. And that being at the top doesn't fill you to the top and doesn't completely satisfy you. The richest, most popular, most beautiful and accomplished still struggle with depression, anxiety, low self-worth and loneliness. Personally, I can recall two times in my life when I wrestled with suicidal ideations And I can still vividly recall the sense of fear. I wanted to live, but I was more afraid of living than dying. How can we be be delivered from our fear? The Christian counselor, Ed Welch, he says this. He says, fear and anxiety both live in the future. But let me tell you this, providence teaches us that God also lives in the future and he knows the future and he has planned the future. Therefore, there's no reason for you to fear the future. And he's working all those things together for your good because he is good. Verse four, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. It's the goodness of God that delivers us from our fears. I do want to say that there's absolutely a place to seek out professional medical advice and medication. I believe that is a common grace gift of God to help us keep our feet as we navigate through this fallen, broken world. But there's certainly a place and an important place for us to seek out the special grace of God and knowing the goodness of God. The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayer says this, It is the discovery of thy goodness alone that can banish our fear. It is the goodness of God that will banish out your fear. Verse 19, David says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Although we may be fear-free, when we learn the goodness of God, it doesn't mean we'll be pain-free or problem-free. What I just read, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So what does it mean that God is going to deliver them out of them all? It could mean three things. It could mean that God is going to deliver you now out of those pain and problems, and that's a possibility. 
or it can speak about the ultimate deliverance when we get to heaven. Or it could mean that God is equipping you to face those afflictions faithfully and to mature in your faith. Verse 7 says this, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. That word for deliver in that verse means to equip or to make strong or to brace up. And so whether God chooses to rescue you immediately from your affliction, pain, and problems, or chooses to wait until you get to heaven, or chooses to equip you to face those pain and problems, those are all acts of God's goodness and providence. And the last way, the final way, the goodness of God frees us is this. You are free to live radically for God. I believe that those who are most satisfied in God, those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, will live most sacrificially for God. Because if we're not satisfied in God, and if we don't believe that he is all good, then we're going to spend our lives seeking that good and that satisfaction elsewhere, but to no avail. We're going to be so busy trying to fill ourselves up with other things that we're going to be too busy to live for him. And this is a daily battle we all face because this is the goal of all the advertising that we see around us. Their goal is to convince you that you are dissatisfied. Whereas Jesus wants to convince you, he satisfies. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life and I am the living water. That whoever comes to me will never hunger and whoever believes in me will never thirst. When we are so satisfied in Christ, we can say what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, I have nothing, and yet I have everything. And we know how he lived his life all out, no holding back for God. He says this in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I believe that a church filled with people who are so satisfied in God and know the goodness of God, that's going to be a generous church. That's going to be a mission-supporting church and a mission-sending church. That's going to be an outward-facing church, an evangelistic church, and a gospel force to be reckoned with. I pray, Christ Central, that that would be us more and more each new year. But in order for that to be the case, we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so would you, Christ Central, begin seeking the Lord more in your life than you ever have before? There's nothing more we want as pastors and leaders than for you to know Jesus on such a level where you never hunger and thirst again. And would we sing this response song as both a prayer and a pledge that Jesus, I want to know you more. Let's pray. Father God, help us to know you better. Help us to taste and know your goodness We know that when we look to you, then we will never be ashamed or disappointed. And would you make the faces of those you love be radiant so that our souls will always exalt in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.